heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament showeth his handiwork. Day unto day uttereth speech, and night unto night showeth knowledge. There is no speech nor language where their voice is not heard. Their line is gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he hath set a tabernacle for the sun, which is as a bridegroom coming out of his chamber, and rejoiceth as a strong man to run a race. His going forth is from the end of the heaven, and his circuit unto the ends of it, and there is nothing hid from the heat thereof. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is thy servant warned, and in keeping of them there is great reward. Who can understand his error? Cleanse thou me from secret faults. Keep back thy servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me, then shall I be upright. And I shall be innocent from the great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight. O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. Please give your kind attention as we call upon Brother Jim Horton to speak to us tonight on the heavens declare the glory of God. Brother Jim. Before beginning the remarks that I should like to make, I'd like to uh, express to all of you, on behalf of myself and my sister wife Alice, how pleased and privileged we feel to be here with you. It's been a long time since I've been here and an even longer time since Alice was here. And uh, we bring the love and the fraternal good wishes of the brothers and sisters in the Hamilton West Avenue Ecclesia to you. And I know that there are some other folks from that Ecclesia here. And I can tell you that there are many in our home Ecclesia who would like to be here, not because I'm here, they'd like to be here because you're here, to be able to fellowship with you. 
Having said that, um, this evening what we plan to do is to show principally for most of the time that we have allotted some slides. And uh, if you can't see them over here, I want to make it very clear that you've got all the permission in the world to move wherever you want. It's not going to upset me if people are up moving around in order to try to get you know better access of looking at the screen. Uh, I'm probably going to be standing here to the right-hand side of the podium, and that may obscure the vision of some of you. So please feel free to you know make whatever adjustments you need to make. What we would like to do tonight is to hopefully give you maybe a little different perspective on things. We'd like to give you a set of eyeglasses to look at primarily the doctrine, I think we're getting feedback here, the doctrine of the, the kingdom of God, but in a way that we don't normally look at it. It's nothing new, it's just a different perspective. And in regard to perspective, I'd like to just, in a very rudimentary way, try to demonstrate something here. If we look at this, all we see is a black dot in the middle of the screen. That's principally what you will see. However, if we add more detail to try to give us some sense of perspective or depth, then that might help us get some better perspective on figuring out what this is. Well, now we have a black dot with a kind of funny black swirl swinging around to the sort of upper right quadrant. It really doesn't tell us what's there, does it? Um, If, however, we were to add this, then I think that takes us a long way down the road to getting maybe a better picture of what that black dot might be. Finally, if we were to add to this that information, and it doesn't quite register, but the detail that's been added there hopefully allows us to get, with this very simple drawing, some perspective. Namely that, hopefully you will see this, that we have the black dot as the front of a train. And it's coming around a track behind a mountain towards us. And we can tell it's coming towards us because the way the smoke is blowing and being left behind. The trees in the foreground are larger than those in the back and this rather poor attempt to draw a track coming towards us um, with more detail and greater width and sort of going to a vanishing point towards the train gives us a very rudimentary, rather poorly drawn sketch of perspective. I mean, with that information, we certainly get a lot more than just a dot. And it's kind of in that respect that we would like to try to share with you a perspective about the kingdom of God and the purpose of God.
To begin with, in that regard, I would like to share with you some words from Dr. Thomas in that section of Alpes Israel where he talks about the rudiments of the world and is talking about the big picture purpose of God. And I hope that this gives us some perspective on which the slides that we're going to see will provide detail. In chapter 6 of Alpha Zero, where he talks about the present world in relation to the world to come, he, he has the analogy of God as the architect designing a building. He says, God had in his own mind a pattern or design of all the work that was before him, before he uttered a word or his spirit began to move. This designer archetype, which placed the beginning and the end of all things before him in one panoramic view, was constructed in harmony with the principles, the eternal principles of his vast and unbounded realm. That is that God's plan for this universe, God's plans for this earth, God's plans for those who are the inhabitants of this earth, is aligned with the principles of his vast realm in endless time and space. He goes on to say, which coincide with the immutable attributes of his character. The work he is about to execute was for his own pleasure, as saith the scripture, Thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. Quoting from, from the Revelation. But when the work is finished for his own pleasure, what will it consist of? This inquiry we make as the spectators of the wonders of. And he nominates three things here, and I'd ask you to sort of keep these three things in mind because um, we have the responsibility to share some thoughts with you tomorrow morning and tomorrow evening. And these three things comprise, in a very synoptic way, the thoughts we would like to share with you tonight and tomorrow morning and tomorrow evening, God willing. And they are that we see, looking at the scriptures, the spectators of the wonders of God's work, one, under the heading of creation, two, under the heading of providence, and three, under the heading of redemption. Creation, providence, and redemption. The only thing is that tomorrow we're not going to... We want to talk about creation tonight. Tomorrow we'd like to talk about redemption first, tomorrow morning, and then providence subsequent to that, for a very good reason that Paul nominates in his letter to the Ephesians, and we'll leave that till tomorrow morning. He asked the question, what temple or edifice is the divine architect raising for his own pleasure and glory? He talks about God having provided his word. He says, God then has caused a book to be written for our information as to his design, his ultimate purpose in the works of creation, providence, and redemption which are the three grand divisions of his labor. And I like that phrase, that creation, providence, and redemption are the three grand divisions of the purpose of God. 
and which are all tending to the development of one great and glorious consummation. What he has said shall be the permanent constitution of things, must be the end which he originally designed before he ever created the foundations of the earth before they were ever laid. Turn we then to the last two chapters of the book which God learned from these things. We learned from them, from the, from the revelation, that there is to be a great physical and moral renovation of the earth that every curse is to cease from off this globe and that it is to be the be peopled with men who will be deathless and free from all evil, that they will all be the sons of God, a community of glorious, honorable, incorruptible, and living beings who will constitute the abode of the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb the glory of whose presence will evolve a brilliancy surpassing the splendor of the sun. The globe, this earth, the globe, a glorious dwelling place, and its inhabitants, an immortal and glorious people, with the indwelling presence of the eternal himself, is the consummation which God reveals as the answer to the question concerning his ultimate design. That's the vision. He goes on to say, the revealed mystery or hidden thing, the revealed mystery of God's will, which he has purposed in his own mind, is first to found a kingdom and empire of nations which he will bestow on the crucified and resurrected king of the Jews and upon all those who believe the doctrine or word concerning it and become obedient to the faith. And secondly, and he's talking there about the transitional phase of the thousand-year millennial reign of Christ on earth. And then he he jumps to the end of that period of time, and he says, secondly, at the end of the 7,000 years from the foundation of the world, to renovate the globe and to people it... He doesn't say this, but my bracketed one adjective here, fully totally, exclusively, to people it with immortal men, equal to the angels, who shall all have attained to the eternal state and to be the possession of all of its transcendent glories on the principle of believing his exceeding great and precious promises, and of lovingly and voluntarily obeying his laws. Behold then the conclusion. And he's talking about the final denouement, the final purpose of God on the morrow after the Sabbath, as it were, 
in the beginning of that great 8,000th year. Behold the conclusion of the matter. God purposes to elaborate the ages of the ages with all that shall pertain to them. Thus constituted, this globe will become a glorious province of the universe and a new imperial abode of the divine majesty. It will then be a sealess and luminous sphere with all that is meant by there being no more sea. All of the terrible things that have happened to this creation since that first and dreadful sin will have been removed. This luminous sphere will be peopled with myriads of inhabitants of equal rank and station to the angels of God. The means by which, from the beginning, he determined to accomplish this magnificent work were first by his creative energy to lay the foundations, secondly, by constitutional arrangement and angelic oversight, which men term providence, to shape and overrule all things, all things so that to work out the end that he has purposed. Thirdly, by the moral force of truth argued and attested. Fourthly, by judicial interference in human affairs. And lastly, by recreative energy in the renovation of the earth. When the gigantic work is perfected, the edifice will be complete. And the top stone imposed with joyous acclamation saying, grace, grace unto it. And that is the perspective and vision that John Thomas gave us as our legacy. With that set of words, we would now like to look at some slides with respect to looking at the glories of God in the heavens. In a moment, we're going to turn the lights out, turn the slide projector on, and and I would like to make some comments. Before doing so, I would ask you to think about one thing. In the days of all of the servants of old, certainly all through Old Testament times, and the New Testament times, men and women lived in a world without these things, without electricity, without man-made artificial light. And for Abram, for Lot, for all of the worthies of old, for David, the shepherd, they had an appreciation of the heavens and of the stars, and of what we can see with our limited vision of this universe, that none of us in this generation have. We are blinded to the sky by the ambient light of all of our civilization. 
Even in a place like this, you need to get away from all of the local light to get to, if you can, an absolutely jet-dark place without light coming in over the horizon and a clear sky to be able to look up and really begin to perceive what David must have seen every night of his young life and probably throughout his entire life. But certainly as a shepherd boy, on those nights that he would have stayed out there and slept out in the open, he would have seen time after time the glories of God in a way that we can't. The same is true of Abram. You know, on that whole journey from Ur of the Chaldees to Haran and then to the land of promise, he would have seen the hand of God as part of his every 24-hour experience of every day of his life. And that, I think, is an important perspective. And it's an important perspective that our first scripture that we look at speaks to. Having said that, um, I'm going to just turn this on. We will uh, try to put the lights out and go from there. In the, 14th, in the 14th chapter of Genesis, after the events of the intervention on the part of Abram and those with him, of which Brother Dan spoke about so well this morning, and, and the prophetic sort of modeling that is there for us with respect to our time, we read that Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought forth bread and wine. He was the priest of the Most High God. We don't know, but it seems likely that this could very well have been Shem. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God. And I want you to notice this next phrase. He describes the Most High God as possessor of heaven and earth. He recognized that the Almighty was the possessor of this universe. There is no equivocation about that point. And he blessed the Most High God, which is, hath delivered thine enemies into thy hand, and he gave him tithes of all. Then we have this incident where the king of Sodom wants to bargain with Abraham. Abraham has nothing to do with him. And Abraham said to the king of Sodom, in verse 22, I have lifted up my hand unto the Lord, the Most High God, the possessor of heaven and earth. That was his perspective. He understood that he had been called by the creator of the universe. And that's where he had committed himself. He had lifted up his hand to the possessor of heaven and earth. He was promised that his seed would become as innumerable as the stars of heaven. These slides were taken with in California a few years ago by a semi-amateur astronomer. And they were taken with a telescope 
they required a rather long period of time uh, for the, the camera system to register the stars. The result is you get this extremely busy slide of all of these light sources coming at that film. And um, it's a telescope that is so-called rich field, where it's not focusing on a very narrow point, but taking in a very broad area of the sky. And this, uh, this picture is typical of much of what we're going to see. None of us could see that with our bare eyes. Abraham certainly couldn't, even in the best of you know, conditions that he would have lived under. But he certainly saw a great deal more than we see. We are blessed to have the technology in the world we live in to let us see these things. And because of that, we thought that it was useful for us to take advantage of that and have a look at some of this. In Psalm 33, we're told that by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Verse 9, he spake and it was done, he commanded and it stood fast. Whatever we just saw was a consequence of God saying that he wanted that to happen. He created it, he spoke about it, and he commanded and it was done. And it is in that sense then that we want to talk about the kingdom of God. We want to talk about the kingdom of God in a, in a larger sense than just focusing on that transition period of a thousand years. Because truly the kingdom of God is everywhere in his dominion. Kingdom is really when related to the word dominion. You know, there's a phrase, king's dominion. The country of Canada is known as the dominion of Canada. Virginia is the old dominion. It's talking about the area of a um, political or a state boundary area. It's talking about the area of control. It's talking about the area of dominance and control that the king had in a given dominion. The kingdoms of men, Nebuchadnezzar, had dominance over his empire or kingdom. And the universe, in all of its magnitude, is subject to the dominance of God. So in the largest sort of big picture screen that we're asking all of us to take here with regard to our relationship to God's purpose, I ask you to think about the kingdom of God on a much bigger scale in terms of what he has created where he has total dominance, and certainly in the heavens, where his will is done without exception. Sadly, at this point in time, that is not true on earth, and we pray thy kingdom come to this earth in the sense that it is in heaven, that his will might be done here as it is by the angels and those ministers of, and spirits of his who are his servants. So we want to look on this big, broad, brushstroke picture about the kingdom of God, analogous to the things we read from the rudiments of the world in John Thomas's chapter um, that we read tonight. In the 104th Psalm, he says, the psalmist says in the second verse, that God covers himself with light as with a garment, and he stretches out the heaven like a curtain. 
This is part of our Milky Way, that heavy, uh, cloudy area cutting across on about a 45-degree angle from about a little below halfway down the right-hand side of the, the picture. This is another part of the Milky Way. We only see it, you know, on the best of nights when it's really dark and there's no conflicting light from man as being, you know, much richer in stars than the rest of the sky in the northern hemisphere. And we see it as that narrow band that sweeps across the sky. We would never see it this way. I mean, this is just almost inconceivable. There are billions, literally billions of stars in the Milky Way. And the Milky Way is part of our particular galaxy or island cluster of stars in this universe. The stars that we would see might be the bright blue one in the upper right and possibly the smaller blue stars. We would not normally with the naked eye see any of this multitudinous array of the creation of God in terms of these billions of stars. In Psalm 11, we are told that the Lord is in his holy temple, and the psalmist says that that temple is the universe. He says the Lord's throne is in heaven, and from that throne in heaven, his eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. We're talking about the creator of this universe in the incomprehensible expanse of, of the heavens, taking account of human beings on this small little planet and looking down to see if there are any that understand and any that want to respond to his will. I mean, it's just, I don't know about for you, but for me, it absolutely is mind-boggling to try to grasp what that means. That the creator of this incomprehensible, complex, massive universe without beginning or end is prepared to be cognizant of us and to care for us. What we see in this, this particular slide in the sort of reddish haze is... Um, mostly hydrogen gas, very, very dilute, far less, way, way, hundreds of times um, more dilute, as it were, than the thinnest part of our atmosphere. But it is, it either reflects light from the stars or it is ionized by the, the uh, radiant energy from the stars and it glows, typically this red hydrogen glow. In Psalm 68, we read, verse 32, Sing unto the Lord, ye kingdoms of the earth, O sing praises unto the Lord, to him that rideth upon the heavens of heavens, which were of old. He does send out his voice, and that is a mighty voice. Ascribe ye strength unto God, his excellency is over Israel, and his strength is in the clouds. O God, thou art terrible out of thy holy places. The God of Israel is he that giveth strength and power unto his people. Blessed be God. And the phrase, thou art terrible, really is carrying the sense of 
incomprehensible. Not terrible in the sense that it should bring terror into our hearts, but should bring forth a sense of incredible awe. There's a phrase here that I'd ask you to take note of because we're going to look at this and see this occurs time and time and time again in the Scriptures and and not by accident. I mean, there's nothing in the Word of God that's there by accident. And it's the phrase in verse 33 where it says, He that rideth upon the heaven, heavens of heavens. What's that mean, the heavens of heavens? Does it mean the highest part of the heaven? Well, we'll see. This particular slide is taken um, of the gaseous nebula that's part of the area of the constellation Orion. It's called the Horsehead Nebula because, I don't know if you can see just about in the middle of the screen, there's a dark area that doesn't reflect any light that sort of gives you the profile of the head of a horse. In the ninth chapter of of, uh, Nehemiah, at a time when Israel was going to celebrate for the first time in a long time the Feast of Tabernacles, the Levites, fulfilling this rediscovered law, as it were, to, to fulfill that law in Leviticus 23 about keeping the Feast of Tabernacles, address the people... And they say in verse 6, Thou, even thou, art Lord alone. Thou hast made heaven, the heaven of heavens, and all their hosts, the earth and all things that are therein, the seas and all that is therein. And thou preservest them all, and the the host of heaven worshipeth thee. Thou art the Lord, the God, who didst choose Abram, and broughtest him forth out of Ur of the Chaldees, and gavest him the name Abraham and foundest his heart faithful before thee, and madest the covenant with him to give him the land of the Canaanites, etc. It says at the end of that last eighth verse, Thou hast performed thy work, for thou art righteous. And again, we see this acknowledgement of dealing with the creator of the universe, the one who has made heaven, the heavens of heavens and all their hosts, This slide is of our sun. And our sun is sort of a pedestrian, everyday type star. There's nothing especially different about our sun. It isn't the biggest star in in our solar system, certainly not the smallest. But it is our sun. It is our source of energy. If it weren't there, we wouldn't be here. It's just that simple. And in the creative wisdom of God, this earth is just the exact right distance from that sun. The tilt of the axis of our planet is just the exact angle to provide the exact kind of heat balance for the atmosphere to allow us to exist. And that sun is is around which this model of... These are all actual composite... Um, pictures, a couple that are artists rendering, but a lot of this is from NASA probes over a great many years, compiled in a composite way. We see our planetary system. Up at the beginning, you can hardly see it, that little sliver of Mercury, Venus, the Earth, with its moon, Mars. Um, Then we've got Jupiter and Saturn, Uranus and Pluto. And in all of that, 
just in our own little planetary system. This is the gift of God. He has created this earth to be inhabited. He has told us that his will with respect to this earth will be fulfilled. He will not be thwarted by sin. In the battle of Genesis 3.15, he has committed absolutely that sin will be destroyed. And gratefully, we can rejoice that Christ has done that. We know that sin still exists, but by the end of that 7,000 year, it will be removed as was pictured by Dr. Thomas. We would like to talk just for a few minutes about light because that's the way astronomers try to cope with dealing with what is incomprehensible. In a vacuum, light travels at a speed of about, it's not exactly, but it's very, very close to 186,000 miles a second. In one year, one solar year, common unit for measuring distance in space is a light year. And it is the distance that light traveling 186,000 miles a second would travel in a solar year. And it comes out to, and this is a rounded figure, to 5.88 million million miles in one solar year. That is 5.88 times 10 to the 12th or 12 zeros behind it. That's the distance light will go moving across the universe in a solar year. All of these sources of light are for the most part, millions of light years away. We have in the sky, and these, with modern technology, these so-called islands of stars or galaxies, we have in the sky countless massive galaxies or islands or clusters of stars, and many of them have this great giant pinwheel shape such as we see here. Astronomers have been able to establish through their observations, I think with great integrity, the basic shape and size of our Milky Way galaxy. And that galaxy is a giant spiral, not unlike this one that we see here, Except we can't see it that way. We've already seen it in the slides, and we saw it sideways, as it were. Well, let me get it reorganized here. If we, if we take what the astronomers tell us, and I, I for one, have no problem in doing this, their best estimates are that our galaxy is something like 100,000 light years across. And one light year is 5.88 with 12 zeros behind it, 10 to the 12. Our sun has been calculated to be, as shown there, if you think of that as a clock, at about 9 o'clock, but not right out on the rim of the outer spiral, but sort of not quite halfway between the center about 30,000 light years away from the center of our galaxy. What we do see and can see when we look at the Milky Way 
is this lower part, looking at it, as it were, sideways. And the estimate is that the depth of our galaxy is probably 20,000 light years. And again, our sun is out on the sort of side in the sort of central plane of our galaxy. Well, this is what it looks like. This is an enlargement of a part of the Milky Way. And you can see the gaseous clouds towards the center and the right, where it's much deeper. And it's looking out, as it were, across the pie plate. This is an enlargement of towards the center of the Milky Way. And literally, there are billions of suns or stars. And yet God has seen fit to associate around our sun that planetary system with this beautiful earth as the place where he chose to put his feet, where he will, in Jerusalem, make the place of his manifestation and his abode. It is to be, as Dr. Thomas said, a province in the universe for his dwelling. Well, looking at these galaxies, with recent work in astronomy, it has become clear there are billions of galaxies. I mean, we can't begin with our finite mind to even conceive of this. But there is seemingly good evidence that out there in deep space, there are so many islands of these galaxies, these stars, of billions of stars. And if we think of our universe, and if we think of our galaxy, if we think of our sun as part of the Milky Way galaxy, and we say, that's our heaven, then what we're seeing here is that in this universe, there are untold heavens. And I, I really personally believe that the phrase, the heaven of heavens, while it may you know, admit to a number of other interpretations, is in fact prophetically predicting what God has said you know, would happen through Daniel, that in the last times, knowledge will be increased. And I think it's been our great privilege to have this revealed to us that this is the extent to which the creator of the universe has chosen to extend his creative work. In the 148th Psalm, verse 4, Praise him, ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. This is another galaxy, and there's another one behind it over there on the sort of right-hand side. And they're available, and I don't have them here today, but they're available slides like that that show galaxy after galaxy after galaxy. In uh, 1 Kings chapter 8, it's Solomon's dedication of the temple. He says this in verse 27. But will God indeed dwell on the earth? I mean, that's, that's so hard for us to understand. I mean, I, I, I feel like Solomon seems incomprehensible. You know, they built this, this, this temple, and he says, Will the Almighty dwell on the earth? Behold the heaven and the heavens of heavens. What we've just been talking about cannot contain thee. 
How much less this house that I have built it? And he goes on, in that sense of awe, he goes on to pray that God would hear Israel when they call in, dis- in distress and in trouble, that his eyes would be upon them night and day, and that he would hear them and forgive. And if you read that chapter, time after time that point is made. He pleads with the creator of the universe to hear them and be forgiving, recognizing the frailties of men. This is the Andromeda galaxy, which astronomers say is the most one, at least the the one that is most analogous to our own, much like our own Milky Way, a little bit bigger. We talked about God looking down from heaven. In this Psalm, and in Psalm 50, at least, yes, this Psalm 14, 53, where it's almost the same, we have this statement that the Lord looked, looked down from heaven upon the children of men to see if there are any that did understand and seek God. If there were any that did understand what? Well, at the most rudimentary level, did understand that it is He that has made us and not we ourselves, that He is the possessor of heaven and earth, that He is the creator and possessor of heaven and earth that Melchizedek attended to, attested to, and that Abraham also attested to. In the 102nd Psalm, we read about God looking down from the heights of his sanctuary. From heaven did the Lord behold the earth to hear the groanings of the prisoner and loose those that are pointed to death. And of course, that's his purpose. I'd like you to note the phrase from his sanctuary. This is part of the sanctuary of God. This is one of the so-called Pelican Nebula, one of these great areas of enormous dimensions that we can't conceive of, of uh, ionized and excited hydrogen gas which comes through as red in the background behind these and through these stars. In the challenge that God makes to Job, which finally ended up, of course, with Job saying, I repent and whore myself and repent in dust and ashes. He said, you know, he finally sees. He thought he understood God, but now, you know, at the end of it all, he, he recognized that he only then began to understand truly and perceive truly who and what God is and what is required of him. God asked them among a whole series of things through these chapters in the latter part of the 30s and beginning of the last few chapters in the 40s of Job. He says this about the universe. He says, can you bind the sweet influences of the Pleiades or loose the bands of Orion? And he talks about Nazareth and Arcturus and his sons. He's talking about the constellations that can be seen. Knowest thou the ordinance of heaven? Can you set the dominion or the extent of the universe there of in the earth. He's asking Job, you got any understanding of this? This is the Pleiades. We see this constellation in the northern sky about 45 degrees up, something like that. Um, I'm not quite sure what it would be in this latitude, but somewhere like that. We tend to see it in the northern sky uh, in the winter, off to sort of the northeast, um, kind of opposite... Uh, the area where the Big Dipper um, is seen. And with a naked eye, allegedly, I mean, I can't with these old eyes, but if you're young, you can see about seven of these stars, and they tend to sort of twinkle and, 
and have that uh, twinkly, um, almost vibrating appearance, that one little place in the sky. It's actually a cluster of about 15 or 16 different stars. And this is, is a shot of the Pleiades. This is of Orion, the constellation of the Great Hunter. This is Cassiopeia, the W shape there. This is the Big Dipper on the left and, and the bright star over on the right-hand side on the end of the handle of the Little Dipper is the North Star, the Polaris Star. In Psalm 150, we're told to praise the Lord, praise God in his sanctuary in the heavens, the place of his sanctuary, praise him in the firmament of his power. In Psalm 96, sing unto the Lord, bless his name. Verse 2, show forth his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the heathen, his wonders among the people. For the Lord is great and greatly to be praised. He's to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Honor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And surely that's what we've been seeing, the strength and beauty of the universe in these uh, these slides. Psalm 73. We have this situation that I think has some exhortive and instructive help for us in times of difficulty and trouble, and particularly in times if we get vexed about the wickedness of men. David says... Truly God is good to Israel, even to such as are a clean heart. And then he confesses a problem that he had. He says, but as for me, my feet were almost gone. My steps had well nigh slipped. Why? For I was envious of the foolish when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. He says, he was in real trouble when he, he saw what seemed to be so unfair. But later on in the same psalm, he tells us how he got past that, how he got perspective. He had lost his perspective for a period of time around this problem of the prosperity of the wicked. He says in verse 17, I was, you know, in that condition, my foot had slipped, my perspective, my value system had almost gone. He says, until I went into the sanctuary of God, then understood I therein. And... I think that phrase, going into the sanctuary of God, can be interpreted in a number of ways, but I suspect a very real one of them is until he went back, as it were, out there and looked at the sky and looked at the immensity of the universe and realized that the God, the creator and sustainer of all of this, was indeed the righteous, consistent, absolutely true, unfailingly just God, and that in the end of all things, it would be right. In the 17th of Jeremiah, where we find this very familiar, very true statement about our difficulties with our heart, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it. And that was part of David's problem in a sense in Psalm 73. He'd just gotten out of perspective. He'd, he'd lost it for a period of time. In the same chapter in Jeremiah, what do we find? Verse 12, a glorious high throne from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. He's talking about the universe. He's talking about the place of God. And he says in verse 14, 
in the juxtaposition of realizing our shortness in terms of our foibles and the, the deceitfulness of our heart, he says that the sanctuary of God is the place of help. And thus he pleads in prayer in verse 14, Heal me, O Lord, and I shall be healed. Save me and I shall be saved, for thou art my praise. There is something about the need for our mindset to recognize the immense sovereignty of God to keep us in right perspective. Verse 13 of Psalm 77, Thy way, O God, is in the sanctuary. Who is so great a God as our God? Thy way is in the sanctuary. In the, seventh, ninth, excuse me, the 19th verse of the 18th chapter of Genesis, Brother Dan may reference to this this morning, in talking about God's commendation of, of Abram, that he would, he knew that Abram would teach his children the right way. And he talked about that they would go with, correctly in the way of the Lord. And that way was the way of justice and the way of righteousness. And uh, we're talking here that the way of God is in the sanctuary. And I think the the, the message for us is that if we have a greater appreciation and sensitivity to the fact that the God and sustainer of this unbelievable universe has deemed fit to call us to be heirs of those promises made to Abraham, surely that has got to be an enormous sense of strength and encouragement to us and a humbling and perspective-giving uh, view on our relationship to him. It's a view of standing in awe, as it were, and sinning not. Well, we're going to go very quickly through the rest of this. These uh, typical scenes of the universe attest to, for example, the 134th Psalm. Lift up your hands, is the instruction here in the sanctuary, and bless the Lord, the Lord that made heaven and earth, bless thee out of, of uh, Zion. He's talking about the servants of God, which would stand in the house of the Lord. Um, that has an, an, um, it applies, it has an application to those who were charged with the care of the sanctuary under the Mosaic economy and in the temple and so on. But I suspect it also has something to do with us standing out there in our life at times, looking up at the sky and getting our perspective right. These are some of the uh, nebulae and uh, the um, great beauties of the universe that unfortunately we can't see. David had this response to it all, and surely this should be ours. When I consider the heavens, the work of thy fingers, the moon, the stars, which thou hast ordained, what is man? What a, why is God even bothering with us? I mean, it makes us so infinite, infinitesimally small. He says, What is man thou art mindful of him, the son of man that thou visitest him? For thou hast made him a little lower than angels and hast crowned him with glory and honor. What we read tonight. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, and night under night showeth knowledge. There's no speech nor language where the voice is not heard. Their line has gone out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he set a tabernacle of the sun, which is his bard, coming out of his chamber and rejoices as a strong man to run a race. 
what he was, the psalmist is saying here in this beautiful language is the testimony of the creative work of God in the sky is there for every human being on this planet to see. doesn't matter if you're in Africa. doesn't matter if you're in Antarctica. doesn't matter if you're in Chile. doesn't matter if you're in South America. doesn't matter where you are on this planet. If you're a human being and you can look up and see the sky, there's a message there that this didn't happen by chance. If you are sensitive to absorb it and think about it, there isn't a language in the world that cannot understand this. There are people and nations of all kinds of diverse languages, but this visual testimony of the glory and purpose of God can be understood by every single human being with whatever background, with whatever language, with whatever place on this planet, with whatever ethnic background. It's all the same. It's a universal message to mankind. We don't have time to go into it, but I would commend to you something the Apostle Paul says in the 10th chapter of Romans. He cites this verse that their word is gone out and they're lying to all the ends of the world. He cites that as a testimony that speaks of the purpose of God when he says, you know, the gospel is the power of God and salvation. And he, uh, well, I'm going to turn it up if I can read it in this light. That's my only concern here. But um, he says, so then faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. But I say, have they not heard? Yea, verily, their sound went out into all the earth, and their words unto the ends of the world. He quotes this as having a particular significance with respect to testifying of the purpose of God. I'm just going to quickly pass through these. Verse 6 says that the heavens declare the righteousness of God and all the people see his glory. How is that so? Well, if you're sensitive to these things and one realizes the immensity of the universe, if only the visual sky we can see, and if you see that these ordinances are constant, these ordinances are there day in, day out, they never change, and that that constancy is a message of the Creator who made them, that He is constant, then there is indeed a message there that gives us some insight into the constancy and the goodness and the righteousness of the Creator of it. We're almost finished. David, in preparing the elements and the resources needed for the building of the temple, even though it was not to be his charge to do that, but Solomon's, he said this. He blessed, verse 10, from 1 Chronicles 29. David blessed the Lord before all the congregation. And David said, Blessed be thou, Lord God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. Thine, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heaven 
and in the earth is thine. Thine is the kingdom, O Lord, and thou art exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come of thee, and thou reignest over all. And in thy hand is power and might, and in thine hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. Now, therefore, our God, we thank thee and praise thy glorious name. And this perspective. But who am I, and what is my people that we should be able to offer so willingly after this sort? For all things come from thee, and of thine own have we given thee. Now, you can't read that without immediately thinking of this. Because it's Jesus quoting in his giving a prayer to his disciples from those very words. After this manner, therefore, praise ye, our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Hallowed. In awe and reverence, hallowed be the name of God. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom. It's exactly what David said. And the power and the glory forever. Amen. It's a direct echo of what David, his father, had said generations earlier. And it's interesting to note that the only piece of this prayer recognizing the sovereignty of God in this universe and that the kingdom is his and we pray for the day when this earth will be filled with his glory as the heavens are and he will be truly all in all. The only thing he comments about in terms of our fulfilling our obligations in this respect is the editorial comment in verses 14 and 15. The absolute essential requirement that we take unto us in an acting and living way the justice and the righteousness of God. He says, if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you forgive not your men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. And just that, that plain and that blunt and that straightforward. God demands a compassionate and forgiving spirit of us if we're going to begin to understand who and what he is. This is what the creator of the universe is demanding of us. Why? Well, in the 103rd Psalm, we are told of his mercy and forgiveness and graciousness, how he is slow to anger and plenteous in mercy, how he has not dealt with us after our sins nor rewarded us after our iniquities. And the universe is taken as the measure of his forgiveness. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy towards them that fear him, towards those who are prepared to stand in awe of him. As far as the east is from the west, from one end of the universe to the other, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. Why? Because notwithstanding, he is the possessor of heaven and earth and the creator of all that is or ever will be or ever has been. 
he is somehow able to look upon us, sick and dying, descendants from Adam, and to pity us as his children, like a father. He pities them that fear him, because he knows our frame. In his compassion and his love, he remembers our foibles and our frailties, and that we are dust. And it is his purpose to take out of this sick and dying creation a people that bear his name eternally, who will not be dust, but will be immortalized to be part of the multitudinous Christ. Thus we see the universe before us. What he wants of us is not rocket science. In Deuteronomy chapter 10, in reading again the law to Israel before they went into the land, Moses says, what is it that God wants us to do? What does the Lord require of thee? But to fear the Lord thy God, to fear the Lord thy God, to stand in awe of him. That's the first prerequisite. To walk in his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord thy God with all thy heart and with all thy soul, to keep the commandments of the Lord. Behold, the heaven and the heaven of heavens is the Lord's thy God, the earth also, and all that therein is. If there's a message here, it's that understanding to the extent that our finite, limited minds can, even a little bit of the tip of the iceberg of what we're talking about, of the immensity of the universe, and that the creator and sustainer of this loves us and cares for us and requires of us that we love him and serve him with all our heart and soul. If we can match that challenge with a grasp, even though it is limited, of what we see here, if we can take that same message which Micah takes from Deuteronomy and the words of Moses and says it again, He has showed thee, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require thee but to do justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with thy God. If we've done anything tonight, hopefully we have helped ourselves think a little bit more about the immensity of the kingdom of God in time and space and what we are looking for to be part of that eternally, not just in the thousand-year reign of Christ, but at the end of all things. We are told in the 15th of Corinthians, The last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And when Christ has put all things under his feet, when all are subdued unto him, then the Son will be subject unto him, even to God, and God will be all in all. We are told that Christ will reign, in verse 25, until all many enemies are under his feet, and after death, has finally been eradicated at the end of that 7,000-year period. Paul jumps a 1,000 years to the final conclusion of all things. It will be that time when there will be the merger of not only this symbolic picture, but the reality behind the symbolism. It will be that time of which John says, In regard to the revelation, 
I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a great voice out of heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men. He will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. And God himself shall be with them and be their God. This is the picture Dr. Thomas was talking about in Alpha's Israel. And God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying. Neither shall there be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. And he that sat upon the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said unto me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said unto me, It is done. I am Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. On this earth, God will absolutely establish his total domain, his sovereignty, his kingdom, and his dominion forever. And that's what we've been invited to be party to. If it doesn't leave us mind-boggled, I don't know what we can do, except pray that God would help us understand the great privilege that we have to receive his gracious invitation to live for him eternally. I want to just leave this slide on. I want to put the lights on. Can't do that. Alice, if you could do that. And I want to read these closing words from the fourth psalm. This is an instruction to us in the light of these things. God says, Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. And the psalmist said, in response to that, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only, thou, Lord, only, makest me dwell in safety. When we go to bed tonight, if you have the chance to look up and see the sky, you know, if the clouds aren't there, I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to stand in awe and as a consequence of the awe that we should feel to be privileged to be part of what the creator and sustainer of this universe has offered us we should be motivated to give him our absolute very best to come to him in prayer and to ask him to help us to come into that sanctuary as it were to keep our perspective right so that we may lay down in peace and sleep.
knowing that the creator of this universe and he alone will make us dwell in safety.